Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you for delivering me back safely. Thank you, Father, for watching over this fellowship through Brian and through the elders and through the families that uh, we were able to enjoy time in the Word and with each other next last week in my absence. Thank you, Father, that you've given me a new hope and a new awareness of the importance of what we do here, of how the Word of God, Father, will not go out and return void. And though we may see a small gathering before our eyes, let us never, Father, forget that you can do such mighty things with even a small step of obedience. And there are so many, Father, who have been blessed by the teaching of your word through the work of this small fellowship, far, far more, Father, than are able to meet in this room every Sunday. Thank you, Father, for that. Father, we go back into Luke this morning with a great anticipation that the Holy Spirit, Father, has prepared this day for a specific purpose so that when we gathered and heard your word this morning, we would be edified by it, corrected through it, and glorified ultimately, Father, because of it. And we thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. Let us be worthy of it. Let us use what we've learned here today, Father, to great effect for the purpose of building up the body. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in and through your word for this fellowship. Let your words, Father, speak today through me. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. We are in Luke 9. We left off about... Actually, we read all the way through chapter 9, verse 36. Last time I was here, but... Uh, I didn't complete what I was going to teach through the last series of those verses. So we're going to reread just a few verses and pick up again. So that would start us actually at about Luke 9:27. So let's get our minds, I hope, back into Luke and just for the moment recap. It was two weeks ago that we were here looking at the transfiguration of Jesus as it's depicted here, as it's captured here in Luke 9. You have Jesus, you have John, you have Peter, and you have James moving up to a mountain to pray, and in the midst of that prayer we see Jesus appearing in a glorified form with two men accompanying him. And last time we talked about this chapter, we said that the men, as they stood next to Jesus, Elijah and Moses, were given, uh, were, were placed in that moment to picture the twofold nature of Jesus' ministry. So if you remember, we said Moses is a picture of the ministry Jesus had during his first coming, when, like Moses, he led his people out of bondage. And like Moses, Jesus left behind no body. If you remember, we talked about how Moses' body was never found, and that also pictured the fact that after death, Jesus' body would not be found either. Then, on the other hand, there was Elijah, and we said last time that Elijah was also there to picture an aspect of Jesus' ministry, but instead of the aspect of his first coming, Elijah is a better representative of his second coming. After his resurrection, when he is ascending into heaven, that's a good picture of how Elijah was taken up into heaven alive in glory. And then, of course, Elijah, we said, is closely connected to Christ's second coming out of the book of Malachi. We're told that right before the second coming, Elijah would return and bring the hearts of the fathers back to, the, to their sons. So there'll be this revival precipitated by the return of Elijah, the actual return of the man Elijah. So in both cases, Moses and Elijah, we see some picture of, the as of some aspect of Jesus' ministry. Now this week we're going to continue to look at these two men because there is still more to learn about why they were chosen to stand next to Jesus. That should be the question in your mind. Of all the saints, of all the men of old that could have been selected for that moment to stand next to Jesus, God selected these two men. So there's a reason behind why he picked them and not others. And we've looked at some reason already, we're going to look at more. 
Maybe even more importantly, though, this week we want to move into some of the verses we didn't talk about last last time, which was Peter's comments. Peter, as he sees this scene, makes a comment uh, regarding building three tabernacles. And we want to explain what that means and what he's referring to. And then especially we want to talk about Luke's parenthetical rebuke of Peter uh, captured in the text. So let's begin, as I said, by rereading these verses starting in Luke 27, 9.27. But I say to you, truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So that's what we read last time. As I said, we're not going to recover the entire text If you weren't here for that teaching and you're interested in some of what I don't cover today, of course, there's the opportunity to go back and hear it off the the website or let me know. I'll get you a CD. But for today, let's move into the next part. You have Peter, you have James, you have John. They're witnessing this amazing scene. We said before, Jesus is completely transformed. It's his glorified form. It's not just Jesus the way they always see him, but now just glowing or something like that. No, he's completely changed. He doesn't look like the same person as he won't when he returns in his glorified form. And next to him is Moses and Elijah. In all three cases, God is revealing something special to the apostles through all three of these men. First, they see Jesus, this rabbi that they've been following now for some period of time, and he looks totally different to them than he's ever appeared before. And so here he is as the Son of God, One day to be seen by all in this way, in his glorified form, though for now, in the presence of the disciples, he's walking around in this diminished form, less than glorified form. And so for just a moment, they get a glimpse of what he is actually going to have one day, his glorified body. And that'll be his permanent form. So for the disciples, this moment teaches them just in a small way, the true glory of the man they're following. If they had had any doubt, remember just a little while before this, Peter had declared, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Having said that, I'm not sure in all cases what he really understood it to mean, but now he's getting a taste of what it really means. He's getting a little vision of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And likewise, the apostles see these men of renown, these old men of their history as Jews, also in a glorified form, standing next to Jesus. And clearly this was the first time they'd ever seen these men. They would never have seen them before in any form. And we can understand, obviously, the purpose in all of this. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, the Father has been giving people glimpses of Jesus in glorified form. I mean, you can go all the way back through what we've studied in Luke. The shepherds, 
The shepherds saw the star and heard from the angels. Zacharias and Mary heard from an angel and learned a little bit about who Jesus would be. The crowds have seen Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit at the river when he was baptized. There have been glimpses given to various people at various times about who Jesus was and to try to help give them insight into the nature of what it meant that he was the Son of God. Not just a good teacher, not just an anointed man of God, but truly something different. This is just an extension of that for the sake of the disciples. But then there's Moses and Elijah. Last time we talked about them, as I said, we mentioned that God chose these two men to really depict the twofold nature of Christ's ministry. But there's more reason, as I said, for why they're there. And we really have to spend some time in the Old Testament if we're going to understand why. So we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. In fact, we first have to go back and look at Peter's ill-advised comments in verse 33. Peter's comments in verse 33 really give you some insight into why God picked these two men. And so we're going to start with that. When you look at verse 33, Peter says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and obviously one for each of the other men. Luke adds this commentary at the end. He says, Peter said these things not realizing what he was saying. Now, that sounds like a rebuke, right? Somebody says something wrong and they don't realize it. You, you can make this commentary. You can say, oh, they just didn't know what they were saying. Meaning that if they understood what they were saying, they wouldn't have dared say it. And that's the meaning in which it's intended here. So we have to begin to understand why it was wrong for Peter to say what he said. And then we'll have a better understanding of why God put these two men next to Jesus. Peter is suggesting here that the apostles built tabernacles. Now, a tabernacle in the original uh, Greek, the word is skinny or skinny, S-K-E-N-E, not I. It's not skinny as in slim, but skinny as in a tent or a temporary dwelling or, as the Old Testament often referred to it, a booth. So a tabernacle, you know, in the wilderness, the Jews worshipped in a tabernacle, but it was a tent, a big tent, very elaborate one, but it was a tent, temporary. They could pitch it up and move it, pick it up, move it, and pitch it somewhere else. And that's what Peter is saying here. Let us build temporary booths, one for each of you. In the law, God gave the nation of Israel a festival. He called the Festival of Booths. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. I'll just read you a few verses out of Leviticus so you can get a sense of what this festival was about. In Leviticus 23:39, On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day, and a rest on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, you take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, as God stated in his word, this festival was meant to memorialize the time that the Jews spent living in the desert in this temporary lifestyle, living in tents, basically. And it can also be seen, if you really look into it a little further, as a picture of how we ourselves should understand we're living in a temporary setting even now. Though we feel our own house is somewhat permanent, 
doesn't feel like we're wanderers. Scripture tells us otherwise. Until the day we die, we're wandering in a land that's not our own. We are not citizens here. We are citizens of heaven. And we are temporarily on excursion, if you will, in a foreign land. And we need to see this world that way. And that was a teaching we could get into later, but I won't for the sake of time today. But in its simplest form, it's simply a memorial of the time they spent wandering in the desert. The second piece of this puzzle is found in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. We'll spend just a few moments in Zechariah. If you want to go there to look with me, it's uh, near the very end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 14. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Now, the scene in in Zechariah 14 is end times. It is a scene when Christ is about to return, right at the end of the time we call tribulation. So it's a moment in time near the very end of this world's current existence, immediately before Christ returns. I'll begin with Zechariah 14.3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. He's speaking here about fighting against the nations of the world that come against Israel in the last day. Jump just a few verses to verse 6. In that day, still speaking of this same day, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Those are the stars in the sky. They'll go away. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Now Zechariah is building several things here together and we don't have time to sort of break them all out. But the basic scene should be fairly understandable. There's the battle of Armageddon, as we refer to it, right before Christ's second coming. He's about to rescue the nation of Israel from the Antichrist as he brings the nations of the world against Israel, trying to crush that nation. Christ, in that moment, comes down to fight on behalf of the nation of Israel, we are told, and he comes from heaven with the saints. You find that out in Revelation chapter 19. That's you and I coming back from heaven, having been raptured earlier. And when he comes back, he defeats those nations and subsequently establishes his kingdom on earth. The time we call the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign on earth that we hear about in Revelation. So that's the background. I'm just giving you that so you have some background out of what's going on in Zechariah 14. Now look at Zechariah 14:16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, again, a lot of stuff there. We won't go into all of it. But just as a general picture or general explanation, in the time of the Messianic Kingdom, in the time of the thousand-year reign, when Christ rules on earth, there is yet still sin in the world. There are still men and women who come into that time who are not glorified. They are not in a new body. They are not free from sin. Again, if you have more interest in this, I would, I would point you to the Revelation study that I've done and it's available online. But just keeping in mind that there is still sin in the world, 
at least in some people, then you would understand why there would still be disobedience. And in this time of the thousand-year reign, there will be a necessity. God will call upon the world to participate in the Feast of Booths. It's a feast in which we give God glory for his provision. And we celebrate the provision of the crop. It comes in the seventh month at the end of a harvest. Yet there will be some who won't. And to not do it is to receive judgment. Now, taking what we've learned here, all of these facts sort of fit together. Jesus is standing there glorified. Peter sees him in his glorified form. He sees the Old Testament saints back in what appears to be a physical glorified form. So if you're Peter, a good Jew as Peter was, and you understood the Old Testament to the extent Peter did, and you look at the scene, it's not terribly difficult to expect that he might jump to the conclusion that we are now looking at the kingdom. That Jesus has come, he's the Messiah. Now remember, they didn't know he's going to go die on the cross yet. We actually get into that next week. But they didn't know that yet. So their only assumption is, he's come, he's here to stay. And if he's here to stay, it's time for the kingdom. And if I'm seeing him with these other men, I want to try to do what the Old Testament says we're supposed to do in the time of the kingdom. And perhaps, and there's a little bit of assumption built into this, I grant you, but perhaps what Peter is doing when he sees this scene is saying, I want to recognize the kingdom and do what God has called us to do in the kingdom and celebrate the Feast of Booths. It was a time of of celebration in the nation of Israel. It was not a time of atonement. It was not a time of of inner reflection or, or reconciliation. It was simply a time of enjoying God's bounty. So it was a time of rejoicing. And he sees this moment, perhaps, as a time for rejoicing. In Mark's account of this same moment, here's how Mark captures Peter's comment. Mark 9, 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. So Mark's take on it is just a little different. What he suggests, and I think you put the two together and you get the complete picture. What he suggests is Peter felt the need. You ever been in that moment where there's something kind of awkward or uncomfortable or you're just nervous and so you feel the need to fill the moment with some kind of comment i've never done that myself i don't know what that's like that's my biggest handicap you know you hate i hate silence and and so in that moment it's like you just say something and it's like the wrong thing and that's what peter was doing here i think he was terrified didn't know what to say he's like the tabernacles let's do booths hey maybe this is the time for the festival of booths and he suggests it now in just doing that, in simply trying to do his best to you know, explain the moment or re- respond to the moment, it's a reasonable mistake. I mean, you really can't come down on Peter for that. It's not that he did anything fundamentally wrong in that thinking. That's not his problem. The problem lies in his statement that they're going to build three of them. In other words, Peter, unintentionally perhaps, or, or perhaps without even thinking, he places Jesus and Moses and Elijah on a par on an equal plane. He says, it's great, you're all here. Let me get you all booths. Let me, let me try to honor all of you. And that was his principal mistake. And in that, Luke is saying, he didn't really understand what he was suggesting by the way he made his comment. Now, this was instinctive to, to Peter because for a Jew, throughout their history, they had seen God speaking through a variety of sources. That was just a given. That's all they had ever seen. So here is Abraham, for example. He was a prophet of God. In fact, even before Abraham, you know, Abel is called a prophet in the book of Hebrews. So Abel himself is declared to be a prophet all the way back to Abel, the son of Adam. 
We know Moses, who gave the Jews their, their most sacred gift from God, as far as they could tell, the law. So Moses is, is their number one prophet. And beyond him, there were prophet after prophet throughout the generations. They'd always looked to God to speak through various men. And they were all, for the most part, seen as on an equal, at least from the standpoint that what they spoke was given equal weight. The prophets, what they gave us, the law, what it gave us, what Abraham we know from, all of that was considered equal in importance because it all came from God. From the standpoint of how they respected the oracles of God, the word of God. So Peter is at this point seeing Jesus as a logical extension of that pattern. You know, we've had Abraham, we've had Moses, we've had the prophets, now we have Jesus. It just all runs together. And so in this moment, he says, let's build three tabernacles. And Peter was fundamentally wrong. Fundamentally wrong. Not only was Jesus not to be placed on a par with Moses and Elijah in terms of importance or honor, because as the son of God, there is no one who is his equal. But Jesus is also not to be considered just another prophet. In other words, his message is not equal to those messages that came before him. I'm not saying the word of God has degrees of truth or degrees of value. I'm saying that everything we know from the word of God must be understood and interpreted in light of what Jesus taught. Such that when we read something from Jesus' words and then we read something from the Old Testament, if they seem to contradict, and they don't, in fact, but if they would seem to contradict, the way we reconcile that contradiction is to see the Old Testament interpreted in light of what Jesus taught. And in that way, reconcile them. Do you understand what I'm saying, I hope, right? So that we would never propose, for example, that though Jesus said the law is dead, he came to fulfill it, meaning to complete it, to put it to an end. We would not then go back to the Old Testament and read the law and think that we must live it out to be righteous. Now, that doesn't mean the law has no value. It means we have to understand its value to us now in light of the fact that it no longer applies to us for the sake of righteousness. See, see my point? Some who make the mistake of flipping that backwards and simply say, well, the law came first. We need to obey the law as a good Christian. I need to do all the things the law says have misunderstood the fact that Christ's coming brought new revelation in and of itself that helped give us better understanding of what had already come. In the book of Hebrews, I would argue that you see it said best in the first two verses of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 starts this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So God has been speaking to men from the beginning. And before Christ came, God spoke through many men to varying degrees and in varying forms. He, for example, gave some re more revelation to some than to others. More meaning quantity. He spoke more through Isaiah, for example, than he did through Malachi. Right? He spoke in different ways to different men. He spoke through a burning bush at one point to Moses, obviously. He spoke to dreams when it came to time to speak to Joseph. He's spoken in visions to other prophets. He's spoken in various portions and in various ways. But now in the last days, Hebrews tells us, all revelation from God has come through his son, through the gospel record, and in God's revelation of the New Testament, given to men who received it directly from Jesus. 
Paul, visions from Jesus. Peter, James, John, first-hand experience with Jesus. Okay. Jude, first-hand experience or direct revelation. Those men have the revelation of Jesus now, and that is our New Testament. So when Peter equates these three men, man, first Moses, the man through whom God gave the law, Elijah, who by himself represents essentially all the prophets of old, and then finally, standing next to Jesus, God's Son, who brings final, complete revelation from God. When Peter equated those three men, he was making the mistake of assuming that all three men are simply in the same line of revelation. But God himself, I love this about the record at this moment, God himself, the Father, steps in to correct Peter. Look in verse 34 again. While he was saying this, which means, while the words were coming out of Peter's mouth, saying, let's build three tabernacles, even before he finishes his sentence, a cloud forms. And we know God often will address men through a cloud because if they were to see his presence, it would mean death for anyone who is of sin because judgment would come in that moment. So he is protecting them, in effect, by putting a cloud between himself and them. And as it overshadows them, naturally they are afraid. There's an ominous fear. The fear of the Lord is a palpable, tangible thing that comes upon a man or woman in sin as they are close to the Father. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, those other two guys, by the time God had made these statements, those other two are fading away. They're already gone out of the scene. He's making the point dramatically for the sake of the apostles that they're not equal. It's not like you think of them all in some big pantheon of revelators. There is my son, and he is the word. And the only reason those other men knew anything to begin with is through my son I revealed my truth to him back in their day. And now that he is here in flesh and he is speaking, there is no need for any other revelation. The disciples are told not forget the law, forget the prophets. They're not told dismiss all that stuff you learned. None of it matters anymore. They're not told it's all or nothing. But they are told that in both cases, those revelations must always be known in light of what we know about what Jesus gave us. He is the one through whom all revelation comes. Those other two men, Moses and Elijah, they're never going to stand equal to God, to, to God the Son, to Jesus. They're never going to be interpreted apart from what we know Jesus said. And they will always be in harmony with him. And when we study the Bible, we want to look at it that way. One of the things I think we do well here, I mean, we have certainly things we could do better, but one of the things we do well is we don't favor one aspect of Scripture over another. I mean, we're in Luke right now, so we'll be in Luke. We were in Genesis before we were in Luke. And even as we teach through Luke, I mean, today's a good example, we go to the Old Testament. And it's not that we have to. There's no formula here. The fact is, though, it's one work. It's revelation from God in total. It doesn't have a better part or a worse part. No part is less relevant. None of those disparaging insinuations that I hear other churches make. It's all God's word. And it's all relevant. We will spend time wherever God sends us in his word. And I think when I was teaching this weekend, as a matter of fact, this last weekend, teaching out of the book of Numbers, which happened to be the place that I think God directed me to go, um, was in itself a bit of a surprise, I think, for many of the people who were gathered in that church. I don't believe in the tradition of, of that church. Maybe it's a denominational thing. I don't believe spending an extended time in the Old Testament is a common experience. And it's healthy to get that opening, to see the fact that the word is just as relevant on any given page. 
One of the things I'm fond of saying is if you open your Bible anywhere and point to a page, I'll show you Christ. That's the purpose of the record of the word is to reveal Christ. Every page is designed to bring us to know either we have sin and we can't solve that problem for ourselves and or here's your solution. Christ on the cross. One obviously points to the other. But in both respects, it's part of a common story about how men need the saving grace that God provides through his son. And the whole testimony of Scripture is designed around that one central theme and that one central point. We ignore it at our own detriment. So let's move on in the text. Having heard the words of God, the apostles were told they drop in fear. Soon after that, Jesus leads them away from the mountain. And in the course of walking them down, he mentions, Luke mentions that they didn't say anything to anybody. The other gospel writers actually go a step further and make the comment that Jesus told them not to say anything. I want to put that aside for a moment. Next week, we're going to come back into this basic central point of what is Jesus trying to hide and why, and how does it actually tie into the rest of chapter 9. So let's set that aside for a moment. I want to focus for the rest of the day on what we see in the next series of verses in Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Verse 43 continues, but I'm going to pause there. There's really a break in the thought that we'll pick up next week. So the scene again, Jesus is coming back from the mountain. We're not sure which mountain it is, but he comes back probably from a remote place to somewhere where there's people gathered and there's a town nearby, perhaps. And the rest of the apostles are certainly there. And as he comes down, he's confronted. As the text says, he's confronted by a father with a boy under demonic control. Now, I know from the teaching you had the benefit to hear last week that this topic has already been front and center. And I don't obviously intend to go through all of that. Again, but I I do want to bring up some points that actually tie into what you studied last week. And I I do want to give you some insight out of Scripture to help fill in and and complete what I hope is the biblical view of demons and demon possession. Now, the facts in in, in what we've read, they present themselves very easily, right? You're looking here now at uh, a boy who's clearly under the spell, under the uh, control of a demon. He's either indwelling the boy, which I think is the case here, and at the very least, he's certainly affecting the boy's behavior. And it's interesting, as you look at this story kind of placed where it is, you should have a question come to mind. Why is this inserted the way it is sort of immediately after Jesus' transfiguration? It almost seems kind of like Luke just kind of jumps back into something he's been talking about in the recent past. It's, it's, it seems awkward, at least as you study through the whole chapter. For today, it's going to be enough for us to simply look at the boy. But keep this thought in mind, because when we come back next week, you're going to find, I think it's interesting, that immediately before this, you hear Jesus telling the disciples, in, as I said, in one of the other gospel uh, uh, writers' account, 
Jesus says, I must suffer and die soon. But don't tell anybody. And then they come down from this mountain experience of the transfiguration. We see this story, and then if you scan your eyes down the page, you'll notice that the next series of verses out of Luke goes back to the theme of Christ having to be put to death soon. So it's odd that this just falls in the middle of what would have otherwise seemed like a logical extension out of that moment on the mountain. And I'm wetting your appetite a little with that because we're not going to talk about that today. Next week we will come back into that point of why this sits where it is. But we can begin to understand it a little better by looking at the issue itself, looking at the moment itself. The young boy, as we said, he's under the control of a demon. Now, the demon here can clearly force the boy to hurt himself, can't he? And he does it in this very hysterical, bizarre fashion. The scene, as you would have seen it, if you had been standing there in the crowd, I want you to begin to picture in your mind, what would this have actually looked like? Form a scene. Picture the boy. Picture the ground. And him being thrown to it and what it would be like. And what would your emotion be in that moment? Uh, You know, it may be very antiseptic and distant as we sit here now, but I would challenge you that you'd probably be scared. I don't care how brave you are. I don't care really what you believe out of Scripture. It's hard in that moment, no matter how secure you are in your understanding of God and the Scripture, to not be intimidated by watching that scene, especially especially if you understood that you were watching a demon at work, right? In our world today, we kind of make it a little easier by saying it's mental illness. And yes, mental illness exists, but I also believe this exists today, and we mistake it for mental illness sometimes. And so I believe if you were to say that boy's uh, schizophrenic, uh, you know, he has a mental disorder and he's throwing, uh, you would look at it and go, oh, that's such a shame. But if I told you and you believed it, that that was a demon in the boy doing that, you'd be scared out of your mind. And I believe that's what's going on in this crowd. And that is exactly the enemy's principal purpose. The fear that he causes through these kinds of experiences is his weapon. It is his means of intimidation. It's bringing fear and dread and doubt into the mind of the crowd about where real power lies and how much that power can influence you. And so in this moment, his strength, the enemy's strength, is magnified by what he's able to do to this boy and in what happens in the minds of those who watch it. And it helped the enemy. Remember, it doesn't really help the enemy to torture a little boy. In the grand scheme of things, spiritually speaking, what does he hope to gain by tormenting a little boy and his family? Nothing, really. Only in the fear that it produces within people who see it. Then the enemy gets his benefit out of it. Now, isn't it curious that the apostles couldn't cast out the demon? It implies just by the text that they tried, they thought they could, And they probably wouldn't have tried if they didn't think they had the ability. What did they do earlier in this chapter, remember? They were sent out casting out demons. So they're not doing this out of some bravado, some false pride. They really believe they could help this boy. And they tried and it didn't work. Isn't that interesting? It didn't work here. And look at Jesus' reaction to that fact. He's not, I want you to understand out of the text, Jesus is not reacting to the Father's request when he says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. I don't believe he's reacting to the man. I mean, after all, what did the man say? The man just said, help me. My boy's being possessed. Your apostles tried. They can't do it. Can you? And though he may have wanted to include the man in some oblique, tangential way, sort of like, well, 
you know, you, you, you're not even sure if I can do it. Maybe you're not a believing generation. I, I don't think that's the real sense. I think the real sense here is the fact that the apostles couldn't do it. Because look at what Jesus says. The word perverted, diastrepho in the Greek, diastrepho, it means crooked. It means misled. So you could read this misled and unbelieving. Misled and unbelieving. And he's clearly frustrated. When you look at the words, he says, how much longer am I going to have to be with you in this state of unbelief and misleading? He's frustrated about it. The enemy in this moment has succeeded in leaving the crowd, and I would argue the disciples themselves, doubting God's power over the enemy's power. In a moment of doubt, in a moment of being misled by their own fear, the enemy has gained the very victory he sought in that moment by intimidating the apostles to the point where their own fear inhibited their belief and therefore the effectiveness of their ministry in that moment. That would be the way I see what God is doing in this moment. And then look at Jesus. He steps in and even as he approaches the demon, what does the demon do? He has one last try at throwing this boy down in front of Jesus to intimidate, I would argue, both Jesus and the crowd. And of course, Jesus is going to have nothing of it. In short order, he casts the demon out and gives the boy back to his father. It's almost anticlimactic. He's gone. Here you go. It's so easy it doesn't even seem to really fit the drama of the moment. You almost want him to kind of wave his hands more and fight with the demon for a moment. And, you know, No, it's like, you're out of here. Boy's fine. And then look at the crowd's response to that. In the very beginning of that one verse I cut in half, verse 43, they were all amazed at the greatness of God. I, I, I want to emphasize that. They're not just thankful. It's not just, oh, that was great. We knew God could do it. They're amazed. Look what God can do. He can cast a demon out. Yeah, guys, he can do that. It's not that hard. God is, you know, God in his usual way will turn what the evil of the enemy is, what the enemy is trying to do in evil to good. And actually, the more the enemy is trying to do evil, the more God can amplify that and use it for good. He takes this inappropriate emphasis that the crowd has in their mind, this inappropriate emphasis on Satan's power. They're all amazed. They're all scared. They're all wowed by what Satan's doing in this little boy. And it's disproportionate. They're way overemphasizing the enemy's power in their own mind, giving him far too much credit in relation, not in relationship to themselves, mind you, but in relationship to God's power I'm talking about. They've almost done this. Here's God. Here's Satan. Oh, look what look, look. I wonder who's going to win. That's what's going on in their mind. And then when God comes in and says, OK, I'll turn this to good. He zaps it so quickly that it amazes them at how much power God had in the moment in what seemed to be a very difficult situation. God turning into great cause for praising his name. If we learn nothing else, and I'm going back now to what Brian taught you, and I'm talking about what I'm teaching today and all the things we've done in the past. If you learn nothing else about demons, learn this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And though the enemy can bring attacks against us indirectly, and by that I mean they can, he can bring men against you to do harm, against you or your possessions, he can send his allies in the spiritual realm to you know, disrupt your life in any number of ways, maybe bring you into temptation or at least bring temptations before you, I should say. All of that can happen, but let's be clear on this. Scripture never provides us a single example that I know of, of the enemy being able to directly control a believer's body 
in the way we're seeing it done here. Either, and certainly can he never indwell you. You're not going to be thrown down, pitching and screaming if you're a believer. Scripture never shows us that once. The only time it ever shows it happening is as it shows it right here. Prior to the stepping in of Jesus and of faith and of being a child of God, then you're on the enemy's territory. He can deal with you as he wishes. But God, having stepped in and taken that away and essentially made you a child of God, he puts you off limits. And so when we encounter someone exhibiting these kinds of traits like this boy, no matter what they claim about themselves, God is showing us by their very behavior that they are someone who is not his child, but rather someone under the control of the enemy. And we need to have spiritually open eyes to understand that and not let the fear that the enemy is trying to, to create control our thinking. Hebrews tells us that as a Christian, we have no reason to fear death because that is the enemy's principal tool of control. Fear of him through fear of death. And the other half of this, the other thing to remember is if there's any temporary success that the enemy enjoys against us, some setback in our life, whatever that might be, and just go read Job if you want to see just how dramatic they can be. If you suffer that kind of a temporary setback, then it has to be because God himself has handed the enemy some kind of limited victory and he's done it for some good purpose. That's the part that we often miss. God's not doing it to you. He's doing it for you. And it's up to us to understand knowing God's nature and knowing that he is good. It's up to us to try to examine our circumstances and try to understand with his help what it is he is trying to do good through the enemy. Look at Job. Job went through more than I hope any of us would ever experience. And it was all done to good. If you had to put in one word or in one sentence, what was the good that came from the experience God allowed Satan to put Job through. It has to be the record of Job. That his life story became a book in the Bible and thereby became an encouraging testimony to everyone who lives since. That, and by the way, that and that alone is enough reason for God to do what he did to Job. For his own glory. He doesn't owe us anything. It's all grace what he chooses to provide. So my point is this. Though we understand and respect the power of the enemy, we understand and respect the power of God infinitely more. And as his child, we have no fear of the enemy. We only have fear of the Lord. And if he chooses to give the enemy some opening into our life, he's doing it for some greater good, some greater reason to either glorify his name and or build us up through some trial or test. And we praise his name in the moments of our distress every bit as much as we praise his name in our moments of success. If we understand scripture, don't give the enemy the victory he seeks through fear. Understand his power, yes, but don't be misled and don't be unbelieving when it comes to God's superior power. I'll end with four verses out of Romans 8.15, beginning in Romans 8.15. Paul says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, for showing us so clearly that though fear will come, that the enemy may choose to use it to paralyze us, Father, from being obedient and from doing as you wish. We do not need, Father, to have that fear. We know that. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us understand it. That you would help us, Father, as we seek to do your will, to be courageous in the face of the enemy. To know his attacks will come. Father, to understand he is not going to give up. That he is desperate. But no no matter what he may try to do, Father, the only thing that he can do is that which you allow. And like a good father, you may allow at times for your children to be tested, to be tempted, to be placed in the in the way of harm, Father, but not for destruction. We know that, Father, not for the purpose of destroying us, but rather for the purpose of building us up and glorifying your name. Let us see those trials, Father, for what they are, and let us respond to them in faith and in trust. And if it be possible, Father, let us find a way to glorify you, to praise you, even in the midst of our trials. To know, Father, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We're on the winning team, Father. Let us remember that. Let us not act like the team being beaten. And in all we do, Father, in all that we say, we want it to be in your name, to your glory, according to your will. Let us not ever be arrogant, Father, stepping out with a presumption that because we are your children, we can dictate your will and that we can decide when and how you will defeat the enemy. That we might be like the apostles when the moment when they tried to cast out the boy, the demon from the boy, Father, someone who perhaps was doing it in their own power and then doubted based on the power of the enemy what could really be done. Don't let us follow those steps. Let us instead, Father, speak boldly. Let us act, Father, without cause for guilt, without blame, honoring your name. And, Father, we pray you would do a great work through us. I also ask, Father, a blessing on our fellowship. As always, Lord, you've been so good to bring us together, to hold us together, to give us an opportunity to meet in this place. And we ask, Father, that uh, that would continue. And if it uh, be your will, Lord, we pray others would know about us and would be interested in hearing your word taught and might join us as well. And in the week to come, all those plans we've made, all those things we hope to do, Father, we pray they would be in your will, you would direct us and guide us. Bring us back here to be your will next week so that we may study more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.